going up those steps a little carefully. I'm not used to using a cane. I had to think about the right way to do that. And some of you might remember a number of years ago, I was at Pinebrook, and uh, I had torn the ligaments in uh, this same ankle that I'm having problems with. And uh, as a result, I was on crutches. And I got the crutches right before I went to Pinebrook. I didn't have any training on them, didn't have any much experience with them. And uh, each night I was on the platform. And if you're familiar with Pinebrook, there's about six steps on either end of the platform that you've got to use to get to the platform. And so I would wait each night until everybody had left and I would go and sit down and uh, just rutch my way, good Pennsylvania Dutch word, rutch my way down the steps. Well, by the end of the week, I was getting old, I was getting a little more confident, and so I decided I was going to go down with my crutches. I was at the top step, and I put my crutches down on the next step. Once I started doing that, I realized that's not how you do it, because it just makes you a catapult. And so, here I am, flying through the air from the top step and landing splat on a cement floor. And all of a sudden, you just heard this gasp, this, you know, wondering if I had killed myself or broken every other bone or whatever. And you heard this gasp just for a moment. And then you heard this incredible laughter coming from my wife. Who said, you look so silly. Fall down those, those steps. And then everybody was laughing, and it turned out to be just fine. But anyway, I'm just being a little, a little careful tonight. Tonight we're looking at our last message from the book of Job. Finally, Job's trials are ended. And God delivered Job from Satan's attack. Key verse, Job 42.10. Then Ivy translates this, and after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again. And uh, King James translates verse 10, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Literally, the word that is used in this verse does in fact mean captivity. The idea is that God freed Job from Satan's oppression. Satan had been casting all of these hard and difficult trials at Job, and God finally brings an end to that and does not allow that activity continue any longer. And as a result, God is going to restore Job to a condition that is better than new. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God restores us to a position that's better than new. I like looking at restored automobiles. And sometimes you'll hear these restorations described as better than new, better than coming from the factory. Oftentimes because the paint jobs on them so exceed what is the paint job that comes from the factory. They are, in fact, better than new. And in this instance, Job is going to be Better than new. In Job 42.10, it reads, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And then 42.12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job 
more than his beginning. Tonight we want to look at those blessings and then ultimately derive some lessons from the entire narrative of the book of Job. First, in blessing Job, God gave Job a precious relationship to his family and friends. Job's family and friends regularly and repeatedly interacted with Job. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. Key word is then. Then is after the captivity had turned, after these trials had ended. Job's family and friends shared in fellowship together as he welcomed them and extended hospitality to them. For it says in verse 11 that they ate bread with him in his house. So they came to Job and Job fed them. It is quite obvious that everyone was welcome at Job's house. Those who had not helped him in the midst of the suffering now came and were welcomed by Job. Remember in Job 19, 13, and 14, Job laments and he says, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. It would appear that in the entire duration of Job's sufferings, that his family members, his brothers and his sisters, never came to pray with Job, to encourage Job, to lament his condition, or simply to be with him. They are nowhere to be found in the narrative. It's not until his condition changes that they show up again. Three, entertaining all of these guests would have been a financial hardship upon Job at the beginning. Remember, Job has lost absolutely everything. He is devastated. And yet now these people are coming, and he is sharing his meager foodstuffs with him. And I have here we find the full measure of a gracious and giving spirit. These individuals who had shown no Concern for him in the past now are welcomed into his home. That again is an example of the kind of righteousness that Job manifests. That he forgives his brothers, his sisters, makes them welcome, makes them feel comfortable, and uh, even provides them with Job. Job's family and friends express their condolences. It says in verse 11, that they consoled him. The idea is that they expressed their sorrow over all that had befallen Job. Uh, They lamented with him. They felt sorry for Job. This most likely included their regrets and how they had failed to be helpful to Job in the midst of his adversity. It doesn't say that specifically, but it says they consoled him. I don't know how they would have done that without recognizing their failure to have done that earlier. That they come and want to uh, speak of Job, of their sympathy, their empathy for him. For Job's friends and family did, in fact, sympathize with him. Verse 11 says they comforted him, a word for sympathy or empathy. Here we find that the family and friends enter into the mindset of Job. They began to understand the depths of Job's experiences. Here is a great lesson for us. If there has been someone that we have failed in the past, we can go to them in the present and seek to make amends. 
we shouldn't allow our past failures to prohibit us from ministering to people in the present. Uh, you may feel guilty sometimes about failure to help someone or maybe you feel like you weren't there for them when they needed you. Well, the response ought to be, well, let's be there now and let's seek to be there in the future. This will help to heal a nagging wound for both parties. Next, Job's family and friends sought to be a tangible help to them. At the end of verse 11, it says, And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The money and gold were an aid to Job in rebuilding his estate. It starts off with them giving him simple gifts. One piece of money and a ring of gold. But here we have an example about what we spoke of this morning, and that is reciprocal giving. Job, when he was in abundance, helped many, many people. And uh, that is chronicled for us in the book of Job, how he helped the widows, he helped the the orphans, uh, he helped those that were uh, oppressed. He was tremendously generous. Now Job was in the position of being on the receiving end. House wiped out. All his cattle, gone. All his livestock, gone. He had nothing. And when people came, they said, well, Job, here's what we got. And he gave him some money. And he gave him a ring of gold. And he took it. Again, his righteousness. He humbled himself. And uh, was willing to receive when times were necessary for him to receive. Application. The restoration process is just that. It's a process. One does not get over great tragedy and loss overnight. Friends and family are an essential ingredient in the restoration process. You're going to keep hearing that word. That's a theme for tonight. Restoration is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. In any situation. It is a process. In fact, even when I do uh, marital counseling, I talk about the fact that healing is a process in marriage. I talk about how when people uh, reach a fork in the road and they start going down separate roads, down separate paths, and eventually they get to a stop sign and they say, this is going to stop, we're going to change, we're going to be different, uh, our marriage is going to bring honor and glory to God, we're, we're going to be there for each other, etc., 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 etc. They're at the stop sign. And I tell them, always I tell them, we can pray and you can ask God for forgiveness and you can ask God for healing and for restoration. But that prayer does not magically transport you from that stop sign back to the fork in the road. You've got to walk back the path that you walk down. You've got to undo some of the harm that you've already created. Restoration is always a process. It just doesn't happen overnight. Three, friends and family are an essential ingredient in the restoration process. Job's own spirit was an essential element in the restoration process. 
He did not cut his family and friends off to his own detriment. Because of Job's ability to forgive, he did not distance himself from those whom he needed. He did not make his relatives and friends feel unwelcome. There is a very important verse of Scripture that says, If a man is going to have friends, he must show himself friendly. You must show yourself receptive. You must show yourself open to having friends. If you close yourself off, you do so to the spite of your own face. Job welcomed these people into his home. Because Job was humble... He is willing to accept the help that his family and friends extended to him. Next, in blessing Job, God greatly increased Job's wealth. Job was richer in the end than he was in the beginning. Job 14.12 And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Job ended up with double what he had had before he lost it all. Verse 10 the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Twofold. And if you look at the verse at the top of the page, and you go back to chapter 1, you will see that it is exactly twice as much sheep, twice as many camels, and twice as many yoke of oxen and female donkeys. Literally. Twice as much. But see, the wealth that is spoken of is an aggregate of all that he had at his death, it would have taken a great period of time to once again accumulate that degree of wealth, even as he did not have his seven sons and three daughters overnight. You follow the drift. He's gonna, we're going to find out he has seven sons and three daughters. That doesn't happen the first week. That doesn't happen the second week. And that doesn't happen the second month. In order to have seven sons and three daughters, it requires at least ten years. Assuming single births, assuming some time for recuperation, but you get the drift. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, this is a long process that is taking place. Next, in blessing Job, God granted to Job a precious family. It is often noted by commentators that while Job's wealth was doubled, the amount of children were not doubled. The reason being, while the wealth was gone forever, Job's deceased children lived on. One day, he would be reunited with them. And so, he has seven sons and three daughters, just as he had had previously. Counting the deceased children, it's doubled. Next, Job's daughters are singled out. Job's daughters are singled out by name. He named the first Jeremiah, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapok. Job's daughters are single out for their beauty. And all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. <coughs> <coughs> and then next, Job's daughters were singled out in that they were given an inheritance along with their brothers. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. This morning I mentioned to you that it was the custom of the period of time in the New <coughs> It was the custom in the period of time in the New Testament carried over from the old that the daughters did not receive an inheritance. 
In Numbers 27, verse 8, it says further, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. So here's a provision in Scripture. If a man dies and he has no male child, doesn't matter if he's the firstborn or the sixthborn, as long as he's got a male, the male gets the inheritance. But if there's no male child, then the inheritance, according to Scripture, goes to the female child. Now, there is no um, prohibition in the Scripture for giving inheritance to the female child. What there is, is a caution. That is that if there's no male child, then you must, at that point, give the inheritance to the daughter. Nothing saying that the daughter couldn't receive inheritance before, just that if you have no child, then that, that, that daughter needs to receive an inheritance. So what Job does is, first of all, go counter uh, to culture, counter to society. He does not let that dictate to him. And secondly, it goes beyond what the law required. It goes beyond what he had to do in order to do what he thought he needed to do. Job's sense of justice uh, caused him to uh, take this position of giving the daughter's inheritance, and that is commendable. And it is singled out for that very reason. It was commendable. Next, in blessing Job, God gave him a meaningful relationship to his succeeding generations. Job lived an additional 140 years from the time that his suffering ceased. Gives you an idea of the process here. 140 years. After this, Job lived 140 years. Job lived to see four generations of his children. After Job lived 140 years and saw his sons, his grandsons, four generations. Job died having lived a complete and meaningful life. And Job died an old man and full of days. What we have in the end of the book of Job is similar to what we have in the beginning of the book of Job. And that is, we have a recounting of Job's wealth and then a depiction of his family. And as the trials came, I pointed out that he lost all his wealth before he lost his family. Because the trials grew in intensity. Therefore, ergo, his family was more important to Job than his wealth. Now, we see the same truth at the end of the book of Job. We are told, first of all, of the restoration of his riches. Then, we're told about the restoration of his family. Because that was the greatest blessing of all. This morning we talked about, about giving. I hope that we view the greatest blessings that we have ever received from God is our family. The wonderful goodness of God in granting us spouses and children, if we are so blessed in that way, uh, we should never take for granted how wonderful that is. So now some concluding lessons from the book of Job. First, 
There are more things going on in heaven and earth than we can ever imagine. Job is caught up in the purposes of God of which he knows nothing. God is at work in our lives achieving his purposes as well. There are, there are uncertainties, puzzles, mysteries, if you will, in this life which we have to leave in the domain of God's knowledge alone. This is not just an Old Testament story. This is a truth of the way in which a sovereign God works. In the beginning, Job was clueless as to why these things were happening to him and what God was doing. But God had a good reason. God had a good purpose. And God was achieving his ends in all of this. We should not be surprised then that we encounter experiences in our lives that are unexplainable. We don't know why these things are happening to us. They are mysteries. They're behind the curtain. There are divine, sovereign reasons for everything that takes place in our life. But many times, we don't know what they are. But we need to exercise the faith to realize that God is sovereign and God is good and God does indeed have a reason. Second, there is warning against inappropriate godly counsel. We saw three friends who came to Job with good motives but failed both Job and God miserably. How careful we must be when we undertake to speak for God and to minister His comfort. Uh, We need to really keep that before ourselves. Uh, We oftentimes mean well, but we can say things that don't particularly help the situation. We can have responses that only aggravate the condition. We must be careful. And I pointed out as we went through this that one of the failures, as I see it, is there are no recorded prayers of the friends for wisdom, for guidance, for help, and even a failure for them to pray for Job. They have a lot to say. But prayer is blatantly absent from these narratives. Uh, May we be careful and recognize that as we seek to minister and help others, there is nothing more that we can do than to pray for somebody. I don't know what that means when somebody comes up to you and, and you're going through a difficulty, whether it be physical or emotional or financial, whatever the case may be. And somebody says, I'm praying for you. I don't know what that means. For some, it may mean a cop-out. That's religious religious kind of mumbling of which I feel sorry for you. But a lot of people, when they say, I'm praying for you, in fact, will pray. And the reality is, praying is not doing Let me not do two negatives here. Prayer is doing something as opposed to doing nothing. Prayer is tangible. You are really helping people when you pray for them. When you are praying for them in their midst and when you are praying for them even when they're not aware of the fact you are praying for them. Third, we have seen vividly displayed before our eyes the reality that God's people do in fact suffer. Good and godly people suffer. 
We must be careful not to judge other people's spiritual standing according to his or her circumstances or fortunes. We must be careful not to judge our own spiritual standing based on our circumstances and fortunes as well. You can't measure a person's spirituality by the size of their bank account. And in American evangelicalism, there is this tendency to associate blessings with consumerism. And that if God is going to bless us, it's going to be material. Now here we find these material blessings. But the whole book of Job is about the fact that he lost these material possessions and it did not mean that he was out of favor with God. Nor was God unjust in dealing with Job. God is under no obligation to make us rich for having served him. It's a matter of grace. Oftentimes God is gracious in that way. But not always. Fourth, we have seen the difference of an orthodox knowledge of God and experiential knowledge of God. Job's view of God did not change over time. Job's orthodoxy prepared him for all the suffering that he endured. Uh, Job knew his theology well. And his theology is what got him through these times. He knew that just because he was going through these circumstances did not mean that God was angered with him or that God no longer accepted him. He had a good Orthodox understanding of the scriptures. Like manner, it's very important for us to know the Bible and to know the Bible before the hard times come so that when the hard times come, we can apply what we know. But more than that, however, in his suffering, he came to understand and appreciate more fully what he had already known about God. It is life's experience that mature us in our Christian faith. David said, it is good that I have been afflicted. There are things that we can only know by experience. And the school of hard knocks. We are matured in our faith. I think of myself. And uh, by the grace of God, I grew up in a home in which... I had a wonderful teacher in my mother. My mother was an incredible Bible teacher and she spent loads of time with me, teaching me Bible stories and whatever. And I never had to unlearn something my mother taught me. I never grew up and matured and said, wow, that's a bunch of junk. I don't know where she got that from. Uh, What I was taught was orthodox. It was solid. It was good. I had the privilege of growing up in a church where I had good pastors sat under their teaching and uh, they taught the truth of God's word. And as I go back and look over my preaching of the last 36 years, there really are no major changes in my doctrinal beliefs in these last 36 years. There's nothing that I look over these sermons and I cringe and say, I can't believe I said that. Uh, No, they, they were orthodox. They... They were true to the Word of God. 
But that doesn't mean I didn't grow. Uh, I have learned a lot in these last 36 years. And they come through experience. They come through your response to the Word of God. Uh, I can tell you, I remember it very clearly. The first funeral that I performed after I had performed the funeral of my mother. I understood dying and dealing with grief in a way that I never understood it before. Theologically, what happened and how to explain it, but there was an emotional involvement that came because of my own personal experience. Uh, We need to understand that God places these experiences in our lives to help us to grow, to help us develop, to help us apply, to help us understand, to help us be able to comfort others and minister more effectively. Fifth, we have seen in the person of Job a supreme example of the blessedness of those who do not give up, but rather persevere in the midst of trial, hardship, and emotional heartaches of all kinds. James 5.11 Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Don't give up in the midst of hardship. Don't give up in the midst of difficulty. Don't give up in persevering. Don't give up in doing what is right. The most dramatic way in which people give up is by committing suicide. Job wished that he could die. Said it time and time again. Job lamented the fact that he was born. But there's nothing at all in the text that leads us to believe that he wrestled personally with the ending of his own life. He was willing to submit to the authority of a sovereign God in that matter. He wanted to die. But he was not about to take his own life. What he would have missed out on had he taken his own life. Now that's pretty extreme. But sometimes people give up on their marriages. Sometimes people give up on their children. Sometimes people give up on their church. That's sad. Because you don't get to see the outcome. You don't get to see what the blessing is for having persevered. For having hung in there. One of the greatest joys in my life about being a pastor and being here for 30 years is watching people who have gone out of my life and I've lamented and on certain occasions wept over their having left my life and the church only to see them come back. And that brings me the greatest joy there is in ministry. Seeing people restored. You've got to be in it for the long haul in order to get to that place. To see the value of enduring. Six, we have seen the grace of God in the life of a spiritually mature individual who prays for others rather than to seek retribution of any kind. Seventh, 
we learn the reality that suffering will end. Sometimes it will end in this life. For the child of God, it will always end in the life to come. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Um, Sometimes God does deliver in this life as he did with Job. That was his purpose. And sometimes it's not until the life to come. But the scripture makes it clear there will be a day in which there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more trial, there's no more heartache, and we're all going to experience that. And that's the time that we have to persevere unto, unto death. Eighth, we learn that life is enriched by suffering. Job's life was better after having suffered than before having suffered. What Satan had intended for evil, God intended for good. uh, Joseph, when we went through that series on Joseph, and his brothers having uh, having, uh, sold him into bondage and slavery, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve many people alive until this day. We need to remember There are things that come into our life that other people mean for evil. Satan means for evil. There are certain things that happen that that people want us to fail. They want to hurt us. They want to cause us pain and suffering. Some people, unfortunately, are out to get us. You don't need to be paranoid. It's, It's a reality. But our God is bigger than any of those people. And our God is bigger than Satan himself. So I leave you with the New Testament thought of 1 Peter 5 and following. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. He cares. There's an old chorus that is uh, then written, does Jesus care uh, when all my, and it goes on all these troubles. You know that, that song, does Jesus care? I know he cares. And uh, my, uh, when my heart is troubled and wearied and all these, these things, God cares. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Remember, when you are suffering, you are experiencing what other Christians have also experienced. You are not alone. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will see you through. And even if that means death, God will see you through death. One of the other great joys is being with people who have to work through the reality of their approaching death. They know that they're going to die. They have a terminal illness. And a lot of emotions 
flood the soul the first time you're heard that you're giving weeks or months to live. And it is a process that people have to work through. But I just rejoice in the comfort that people receive by a work of the Spirit of God. That they are not only able to accept, but actually at the end long to be in the very presence of God. You may not know that grace because you don't need it at this time. But I will guarantee you by the promises of God that in the time that you need it, you will experience it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Endure, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray.